This is an ABC podcast. As we begin to emerge from isolation, we still need to comply with evolving safe physical distancing rules. As the rules change, we will all need to continue to adjust. How have we done so far? It's never going to be perfect all of the time. That's because all of the usual and typical processes that we would give both the community and its police uh, opportunity to become accustomised to those new laws and regulations simply don't exist. Policing where, uh, for instance, a little girl was drawing rainbows in chalk on the sidewalk with the family out in the nature strip and a police car stopping and telling them all to go, why aren't they all in their backyard? They were reporting, feeling like they were interrogated, feeling intimidated and generating a lot of confusion. I guess in some ways we are all allowing the government, working with the government, to suspend what would normally be our basic rights. And we're saying, yeah, this is a really reasonable time for us to do that. But in doing that, we also need to trust and have reason to trust that those kinds of rules are going to be implemented fairly and that that people, that certain over-policed groups aren't going to be um, victimised by this. Hi, Damien Carrick here. Welcome to The Law Report. Today, looking at laws around safe physical distancing and how they're enforced. Without a doubt, Australia's adoption of safe physical distancing has so far been amazingly successful. Dr Bridget Hare is a bioethicist with the Kirby Institute for the Prevention and Treatment of Infectious Diseases. It's based at UNSW. Look, it's absolutely critical, Damien. I mean, we know from, actually we know from centuries of experience that social distancing can stop epidemics and obviously that saves lives. And ultimately, it also really saves economies because because you've saved lives. So actually doing social distancing early and reasonably hard, makes an incredible difference to the spread of an epidemic. In this unprecedented time, governments are responding day by day to create systems and frameworks that will effectively reduce risk and and also to create fair systems and fair frameworks that work consistently for everyone, right? That's the difficult task of government and authorities here, right? Absolutely. And the fairness thing is so important. I mean, when we look back about the whole situation of people being fined, I feel like there are two different kinds of moral outrage that you that you get when you read these reports. One kind of moral outrage is when you see somebody being fined where you think, oh, for heaven's sake, there was no significant risk there. And then you have the other kind of moral outrage where you see usually a person with a whole lot of power. You see those individuals flouting or at least skirting on the side of flouting those laws. You get this moral outrage about how dare this person just go out and flout those laws. And I guess examples of that would be, and we had our arts minister here in New South Wales who popped off to his beach house at a time when people are being told not to travel. That was um, the, the very high-profile case of uh, New South Wales Arts Minister Don Howen, who was forced to resign, wasn't he? That's right, yeah, yeah. And arguably he wasn't flouting the absolute letter of the law, according to Gladys um, Berejiklian at the time. I think that's what she said initially. But then, he, you know, he resigned because it was, it was just such a bad look. He was commuting to work from his holiday house as opposed to his Sydney residence. Yeah, 
that, you know, he's, he's this rich and powerful person doing something that we've all been told that we can't do. Okay. And, and ultimately, I believe he was actually fined by police as well as being he was asked fined. To, as well yes. as resigning. You also had the case last week of Deputy New South Wales Premier John Barillaro as well. That's right. And again, he is somebody who has been absolutely central in this argument, telling people not to go into regional areas. Uh, he went to his, um, what gets described as his farm, but if you actually have a look at it, it's this kind of amazing luxury kind of pleasure palace um, in the in the in the kind of beautiful bucolic rural setting. But I believe it's a property that he normally rents out to vacationers. I believe absolutely for for a cost of some, something in excess of eighteen hundred dollars a night. I believe. Now, now he said that he went to the property to quote feed the chickens, mow the lawns, and tend to maintenance. You know, he said it was always very very clear that anyone could go to a property to maintain that property. And I I believe that police have agreed and and the Premier is also standing by him. Yeah, yeah, so it does seem to have been resolved, but I think there is still that residual feeling about regardless of whether he's actually flouting the letter of the law, which clearly it's been decided that he hasn't, it's a bad look for the government to have to have people behaving in those ways. It's, of course, very difficult because things are moving week by week, right? As the curve has flattened, and hopefully it will continue to do so, the, the response to these rules will change, right? And, and, and our response to the way they're being applied and enforced will change. Absolutely. And also our understanding and our risk perception changes. I think when the rules first came in, we saw some quite draconian implementation of them. For example, there was this young man in in Newcastle being fined for sitting on a park bench eating a kebab, which sounds like an incredibly unreasonable thing to find somebody for. The backstory was apparently that he'd been warned a couple of times, but still, I mean, I guess ideally in a public health crisis and when rules have just been implemented, so this was Ideally, a time you like of incredible people. fear, right? And oh, we're absolutely. all being asked to make restrictions to our lifestyle, so we assume other people will also comply, right? Absolutely. But ideally, what you would want for the people who are policing that is for them to have to take on a, a kind of different mindset, a mindset of when restrictions first come in. Our aim is to help people understand. So while we're telling people, "Hey, you can't do this," is to help them understand why they can't do it, help it make sense to them, not be too overtly punitive, but sort of try to support people in making, you know, the right choices to keep the community safe, as opposed to kind of the big stick thing. But obviously, in reality, that's pretty hard. Bioethicist Dr Bridget Hare from the Kirby Institute for the Prevention and Treatment of Infectious Diseases at UNSW. Wayne Gatt is Secretary of the Police Association of Victoria, an organisation which represents the interests of its members. He says police have been tasked with enforcing safe physical distancing rules, which is a role that's very different from normal police work. Oh, it's got key differences. I think one of the key distinctions here is that this puts us in contact with many Australians, indeed, uh, you know, in, in my home state, Victoria, many Victorians where we would ordinarily not have day-to-day contact with. Normally, you're dealing with people who might be involved in crime or alleged crime, but, but here it's a different kind of role. Certainly, 
this is something that in, in our living memory we haven't had to or been asked to do or perform before, and let's hope that we don't have to, in, in, you know, well into the future. But it's probably one of the most important tasks because it, it, it really goes to the heart of keeping every person in every community safe because a pandemic has no boundaries and, and indeed it can impact each and every one of us. Um, and so it is an important and essential role that police across the country have played. Okay, a few weeks back, the Victoria's Deputy Commissioner Shane Patton urged police to to issue fines for only the most blatant and deliberate breaches of the state's lockdown regulations. He said, quote, I'm concerned that there continues to be an inconsistent approach from our members when enforcing the directives of the Chief Health Officer. Quote, this lack of discretion erodes public confidence in Victoria Police and undermines the great work that has been done by our people across the state. Did you agree with those comments? Oh, look, I understood where the Deputy Commissioner was coming from. And I think we have to contextualise his comments at the time as uh, during a period of enormous and rapid change for not only police, but the community as well. So we were seeing the rules change on an almost day-by-day basis. It was really confusing for the police and it was really confusing for the community too. And in a period like that, particularly when you're heading into restrictions where everybody's focused on the absolute worst case scenario, uh, a scenario which I might say we saw unfold in way too many countries across the world, it's important to, to get compliance and to get it quickly. But with that, often can come some teething problems. And we saw that in Victoria where we had instances of calibration, I suppose, with the approach and discretion used across the state being uh, a little bit different. It really was a matter of days, however, before we saw that uh, settle, if you like, uh, settle into what became a, a new normal and a greater understanding not only from the police but from the community. Um, when they're just being turned on, there are going to be situations uh, where that leads us into a confusing situation where people are trying to understand what's required of them. And look, I would expect that those situations will probably um, come to the fore again as we head out of restrictions. Um, The rules will change. People will take a little bit of time and need a bit of time to understand, okay, what is my new, new normal? What are the rules as we head out of the restrictions and how do we apply that on a daily basis? Again, we're going to need patience from police and and the community are going to have to give our police some patience too because we're all adjusting and all uh, responding to those new rules together. We saw back in the the early days, you know, a few high-profile cases, a 17-year-old learner driver who was fined for being in a car, practising and driving with her mum. We saw officers fine one man for for washing his car at a car wash, an open car wash uh, in the early hours of the morning. Uh, Another handed a notice for driving his car to go mountain biking. All these fines were later withdrawn. Were your members telling you that there was confusion about when they should be issuing infringement notices? I think think the first thing to to note is that in those cases, the majority of those breaches are made out and that in many of those cases, clear breaches um, that would have given rise to the potential for a notice being issued. The question always then becomes about whether a notice should be issued and and what value that has in the campaign against a pandemic. And I think that's the issue. That's where the area of grey uh, creeps in. Um, Of course, police were a little bit confused, but you would expect that too. And I'll make the point that ordinarily, when police are given new laws to enforce within the community, that's normally a process that in most states or jurisdictions comes across over a matter of months, if not years, where laws are carefully consulted about with community to test the thinking, to understand the need, to test the effect that new regulations or laws would have. And then there's a, a, a quite a considered process of drafting that legislation that can span 
months if not a year and then there's normally a period of education for the community and a period of training for police which generally means that by the time you actually turn new laws and regulations on you generally get it right almost all of the time that there's, a, there's generally a clearer understanding of what's required of people and breaches that are then enforced by the police are less controversial of course none of that is possible when you're dealing with a pandemic situation where, to be fair, governments have to turn on regulations in a case of days, and that's indeed what we saw some two months ago. And so we have to give uh, both the community and we have to give the community's police a little bit of leeway in these situations. It's never going to be perfect all of the time. That's because all of the usual and typical processes that we would give both the community and its police uh, opportunity to become accustomised to those new laws and regulations simply don't exist. Wayne Gatt, Secretary of the Police Association of Victoria. This is The Law Report on Radio National or, of course, available as a podcast. While acknowledging restrictions are necessary to stem the virus, legal activists are keeping an eye on how those restrictions are enforced. Anthony Kelly is the Executive Officer with the Flemington Kensington Legal Service in Melbourne. He coordinates the website covidpolicing.org.au that encourages people to share their stories about being stopped by police. Very early on we realised the COVID public health restrictions themselves uh, were not the issue. They're evidence-based, they're very important, they are an expression of our shared interest in flattening the curve and preventing transmission of the virus. But however, the policing of those restrictions is really up for a lot, a lot of discussion and it should be, just like any sort of uh, measure that we take in order to reduce the uh, the impact of the virus. So, Anthony Kelly, um, at the website, I see that you're kind of people are emailing in their experiences, and you're, you're also monitoring media reports from around around the country, and you're writing up these weekly reports, distilling this information. Look, I've got to put it to you that you're only getting a very inaccurate and, and piecemeal picture of what's going on around the country when it comes to infringements. Why do this? Well, it's it's only anecdotal data, but it's listed some experiences. It's very uh, important that people uh, that we have a chance to get a picture of what's happening around the country when people are stopped and questioned by police under these extraordinary measures. So the reports, even though they're few in number relatively to the number of actual stops, we're getting a really interesting picture of the sort of experiences that people are having. Tell me about some of those those reports that you've received. Very early on, we started to get a lot of reports of people who were outside in a public space and exercising or going places and being stopped and questioned by police. And some of those seemed far outside the the lawfulness of the restrictions. So they were essentially incidents of police creating a, um, a definition of exercise. So uh, joggers who were, mu- who were jogging around an oval being told to go home by police because they'd done enough exercise. Or in other cases, people who were uh, literally on their way home uh, being stopped and told rudely to go home. A lot of people pointed out the um, sort of antagonistic or aggressive nature of some of this policing. For instance, a little girl was drawing rainbows in chalk on the sidewalk with the family out in the nature strip and a police car stopping and telling them all to go, why aren't they all in their backyard? And um, sort of slightly disturbing and uh, examples of policing that really uh, affected the people 
you know, quite substantially. They, they were reporting feeling like they were interrogated, feeling intimidated, and generating a lot of confusion in the minds of the people, saying that this, in my mind, was totally reasonable. I was exercising, I was doing what I thought was right, and the police have told me something totally different and done it in a way that's it by itself is disturbing. Have those sorts of reports decreased over the weeks? Because, you know, there's certainly been a conversation in a number of jurisdictions where police commissioners and assistant police commissioners have said, look, we, we understand that, um, you know, we've got to use our discretion in a certain way. In a number of jurisdictions, the, the commissioner or the deputy commissioners are now personally checking each fine which has been mm. issued. So has there been a shift in the number of reports you've been receiving as, as if you like, the, these rules and, and the enforcement of these rules has bedded down? There have been. And I guess that points to one of the, the key factors is that we're collecting anecdotal quality of data from members of the public. But what's really missing here is that helicopter view, that the sort of array of data that is available to police of where they're stopping people, what the outcomes are, what the rationale for that stop is. And that's the sort of data that we as the public need, really need to have, to have a picture of how this policing across the board is being, uh, or whether it's being disproportionately targeted towards certain communities, certain areas of Melbourne or areas of Australia. Then, then we can really ascertain if there's a disproportionate impact and, and, and a potentially a discriminatory impact. Anthony Kelly, Executive Officer with the Flemington Kensington Legal Service in Melbourne, who says information about those types of police interactions are not published. Sydney journalist Osman Faruqi, who works with the Saturday paper and the 7am podcast, has been trying to get a different type of helicopter view. He's been crunching the publicly available data about the number of infringement notices that have been issued. We seem to have very different regimes operating within each state and territory when it comes to the way that the uh, public health orders are being enforced, but also in terms of how information about their use is being released to the public. So some states are publishing daily updates in terms of the total number of people who've been fined or issued with court attendance notices. Uh, some states will provide that information to you if you inquire, and some states are just point blank refusing to release that information uh, into the public space. And, and, and within those states that are being more transparent, you could take, for example, New South Wales and Queensland, which most days will publish a running total in terms of the number of people that have been fined. They're breaking up that data quite differently. So New South Wales is the only jurisdiction in the country that is every day providing a line-by-line -line breakdown of each fine, and they're giving information that includes the geographic location of where that fine was issued, the age and gender of the person fined, and some contextual information relating to why that fine was issued. Now, no other state is going into that level of detail, and that means that the vast majority of fines being issued in the country, we don't know where they're being issued, we don't know what for, and we don't know what kinds of people uh, or from what kinds of backgrounds are being hit with those fines. You've done some really interesting data journalism drilling into those those New South Wales figures. But before we come to that, mm. in terms of, of the raw figures uh, coming out of the jurisdictions which do publish them, have they gone down over the weeks or are they plateaued out or, or are they increasing? Well, again, that it, again, it differs jurisdiction by jurisdiction. So the one takeaway that you can draw from looking at the data across every state is that each state 
is dealing with this very, very, very differently. Uh, in Victoria, for example, a couple of weeks ago, they had issued 1,200 fines, and that was a rate about three times higher than what we saw in New South Wales. Now, that was in the middle of April. In the two and a half to three weeks since then, Victoria has issued another 1,200 fines. So they've doubled the amount of fines in the last couple of weeks, going from 1,200 to 2,400. In New South Wales, on the other hand, the number of fines in that period went from 800 to 1,100. But New South Wales has absolutely plateaued. We've gone from seeing up to 40 to 50 fines a day being issued two in the last week or so, just two or three on some occasions. And then you have other jurisdictions in Australia where you just simply don't know, we don't, we don't know anything. That's right. Queensland, we do have the top line numbers for 1,700 people in Queensland from uh, this week had received fines. That's a rate just a little bit higher than Victoria's. But other states and territories, the Northern Territory, WA, Tasmania, it's quite hard to, to build a picture there. The one state uh, that sits on the other end of the spectrum in this is the ACT, which has issued no fines at all since the public health orders were introduced at the end of March. No fines at all up to mid-May. That's correct. And and that's interesting because I spoke to ACT uh, police and they said that they quite deliberately had decided to operate using a model of community awareness and education rather than a punitive kind of policing method that we've been seeing in the, the larger mainland states. There's some of the examples given by police, you know, the Easter long weekend was a big, a big moment for these fines in Australia. A lot of people across a lot of jurisdictions were fined for traveling to, you know, different towns for, for visiting friends and family when the public health orders prohibited that. In the ACT, people tried to do the same thing. Police said that they had hundreds of conversations with drivers and with residents, but they didn't issue any fines. They just explained to people why they should return home. And they say that that has led to the kind of outcome they wanted without having to issue any fines or lay any charges. I wonder if that's easier for ACT police because they don't have the kind of big clusters that you find in places like um, Melbourne and Sydney. I'm wondering if it's a different approach because maybe at that point in time, the risks weren't quite as um, knife edge as they were in those other places. No, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, there's a risk here at at drawing too many conclusions given that there are so many variables. well, Osman, you published an article in the Saturday paper a few weeks ago where you looked at different parts of the state of New South Wales. Can you tell me briefly what you found, but also whether you've looked in the last few days to see whether those trends have continued? What I found was that there are certain areas that are being fined at a, at a much higher rate than their population would suggest. So, for example, uh, 15% of all fines in the state of New South Wales were issued in just three local government areas. It's Liverpool, Canterbury-Bankstown and Fairfield in Western Sydney. They're all areas that have much lower levels of educational attainment and much higher migrant populations and higher populations of people from non-English speaking backgrounds than the rest of the state. Uh, And you look at areas in the eastern suburbs of the lower North Shore, the the northern suburbs of Sydney, local government areas like Wallara, the northern beaches, Waverley, which are quite, you know, population dense areas, also the areas that have the highest number of COVID-19 cases, they had less than 2% of the total infringements issued. So you are seeing quite significant disparities across a city like Sydney. But when you look at regional New South Wales, things become in some ways even more stark. Uh, Walgett, which is a town in northwest New South Wales with an Indigenous population of around 40%, had had five 
fines issued there. The town of Burke, also a high Indigenous population with a total population of 1,800, had five fines infringements issued there as well. And that is a much higher per capita rate of fines than we're seeing in the rest of the state. Uh, In terms of what we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks, I mean, Last Friday is an interesting case study that, that sort of backs up this trend. Out of the four fines issued, three were in Mount Druitt in the far west of Sydney, and one was in Corindai in northwest New South Wales, another town with a high Indigenous population. And the day before, on the Thursday before, most of the fines issued again were in western Sydney. And in fact, in some of these smaller towns, we're seeing more fines issued in these towns with populations of around 2,000 people than in the entirety of the eastern suburbs of Sydney. So the the pattern that we've seen in New South Wales is that overall, the total number of fines in the last couple of weeks has decreased, but the geographic distribution of where those fines are being issued hasn't changed. They're still being issued in small regional parts of New South Wales and overwhelmingly in the western suburbs of Sydney. Osman Faruqi, you're at a point now where last week the, the federal government has announced you know, this staged lifting of safe social distancing or safe physical distancing. But authorities and police are still going to have to enforce the changed rules. So mm. we've seen a kind of a calibration over over the weeks and mo- the recent weeks um, in their response. But we're going to have to see another calibration, both in the way the community acts and the way that the police respond and how they um, enforce these infringement notices. So we're going to have ongoing issues in this area. That's right. And I think it might sound, um, it might not sound logical at first glance, but I think the easing of restrictions actually could create a situation where uh, a confusion between what's happening in different states, a lack of clear wording on public health orders, and the enormous discretion that police have in this situation could potentially lead to more people being fined because they think they're able to do the right thing. You know, we have a situation where the National Cabinet has signed off on this three stage process with uh, you know, rough guidelines for what can open when and, and how many people should attend. But that will differ state to state. And the numbers of people that are allowed to go to the gym, for example, go to a cinema, to visit their family or their friends will differ. So unless we have very, very, very clear wording in the public health orders, very clear drafting and very clear communication from, from government as to what is and isn't allowed, I think we we need to, you know, accept that there is a risk that perhaps people who think they're doing the right thing because they heard on the news that groups of 10 could go visit someone else. But actually, in the state that they live in, it's only groups of five and only for the purpose of care rather than having a dinner party, given that the decision to find someone relies on whether police in that particular area decide to issue a fine or just communicate with someone. I think it's even more important for there to be really clear guidelines both to the community, so they understand what they can and can't do, but also, I think, to police to make sure that these laws are enforced in an equitable way. Sydney journalist Osman Faruqi. Wayne Gatt from the Victorian Police Association can only speak to his state's experience, but he certainly acknowledges that the judgment calls of police everywhere will have to evolve as the rules change. They will, and and, and I think to some extent it'll have to evolve as the risk profile changes too. So we're not out of the woods by any stretch, and if you listened even uh, to this week's announcements from the federal government, it is changed with a degree of caution. It's changed with a degree of hesitation because it only requires a small shift in the in the health data for us to be back where we started some weeks ago. So, you know, it still requires police, I think, to 
to have one eye on that compliance piece to make sure that we are successful as a community and that we don't waste all of the efforts that you know as a community we've all contributed to but that's it's going to be a period where we're going to have to f- feel our way through the new state the new new normal um but I think with the patients, and I think we've seen truckloads of it, patients in truckloads from community, patients in truckloads from our police, with that mutual support, that general patience and understanding, we'll easily get through this. And it'll be, a, it'll be uh, what we've seen, a continuance of police working with communities to help the community. But yeah, we are going to see discretion, discretion being important. And also as the rules relax or change, with every change, we're going to see people going through that process firstly of knowing what the changes are, of applying them to themselves, and then possibly applying a slightly interpretive lens to them. Dr Bridget Hare from the Kirby Institute for the Prevention and Treatment of Infectious Diseases at UNSW. Yes, I think everyone is applying a slightly interpretive lens to both their own actions and those of others. That's the Law Report. A big thank you to producer Anita Barrow and to sound engineer this week, Matthew Sigley. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.